0: So today I want to continue with our summer series because we reckon that if we keep this summer series going, the sun will continue to to shine. So look at it, it's working. So we're continuing our summer series uh, on looking at the life of Joseph, a uh, kingdom living in a hostile world is what we're talking about. So this is part seven and uh, today I'm going to be looking at chapters 43 to 44 Of Genesis, which you might like to turn to, but I'm not going to read them to you, because if I did, there wouldn't be any time to speak other than that, because it would take me about 15 minutes to read. It's about 100 verses, or thereabouts. Okay, so I'm not going to read that to you, so I'm going to summarize the next part of the story for you, and quote some of the key verses, and then ramble around the edges in a helpful way, I hope. That's the idea anyway. So, let me just pray and ask God to help you, and, uh, <laughs> and then we'll get into it. Jesus, I just want to thank you for the revelation of your love that's been amongst us this morning. And Lord, as we talk about this next part of the series, I pray, Lord, that revelation would continue and go even deeper into our hearts. Lord, I pray, you, pray that you would show us the extent of your love and your mercy So let me just retell the story. I'm not going to go backwards. I'm only going to deal with where we're up to now. So if you don't know the story of Joseph, forgive me, but there isn't time to do the whole story at the point that we've now got to. But we're in chapter 43, and from the opening of chapter 43, it seems like several months have now passed since their return from Egypt, and their food is beginning to run out because there's a famine going on. So Jacob, the father, wakes up one morning and he says, there's no food in the fridge and so you boys are going to have to go shopping again down in Egypt, otherwise we're going to starve. But there is a problem with this, because as Judah uh, points out, they will only be allowed back into Egypt if they take Benjamin with them. Because as we saw in the previous chapter, they had to leave Simeon behind with Joseph last time, so they know that this guy is really serious about those kind of things. So they have no choice And reluctantly, Jacob agrees that they go with Benjamin loaded up with luxury gifts and money in the hope that this will cause the unreasonable governor to let them all come home this time and get some food. So in chapter 43, Joseph, through his staff, welcomes them all. All the brothers with open arms. He's all like, come into my house, have dinner, drink lots of wine. Hey, stay in my royal quarters. They're treated like honored guests. And they're a bit worried. They're a bit freaked out by this. This is a whole different approach to last time. But then they see what's on the menu, and they just get stuck in. Next morning, the lads wake up, possibly a little worse for wear after all that wine the night before, but dead chuffed how it all had begun to go, how it all went. And they began to make their way back to uh, Jacob, feeling pretty pretty pleased with themselves. I can imagine them just slapping themselves on the back, well, slapping one another, presumably, really chuffed with how well it's gone. I need to go halfway down the road when Joseph's steward pulls them over and accuses them of theft. And he makes them unload their shopping bags, which they do under protest. And this reveals to their complete and absolute horror that Benjamin, oh no, not Benjamin, is the one who's been shoplifting. Or that's how it seems anyway. Shining out loudly for all to see is Joseph's silver cup in the top of his shopping bag. The one that Joseph had been drinking from the previous evening and there it is for them all to see. And of course, we know what really happened. But the boys have no idea at this point. that The whole thing is a big setup by Joseph, who's arranged for the cup to be planted in Benjamin's bag. And the lads are wetting themselves, knowing that their lives are completely in the hands of this mad governor again. Okay, that's it. That's the retelling of the story. And the first thing I want to just talk about with you is Joseph's strange behavior in this section. I mean it is strange and I've got to admit I've found myself reading these chapters and seeing a very different man to the fair-minded example of righteousness that John Hill told us about last week. It's like John gets sensible Joseph and I get crazy Joseph (laughs) With all his emotional outbursts, his irrational behavior, the deception going on, the manipulation. Quite frankly, to me, it seems like Joseph seems to have lost lost the plot a bit this week. I don't know what you think. And it says, so he was testing his brothers. That's what all the commentators say, as if that's okay. As if that's all right. I mean, so the question I said, well, what right does he have to test his brothers? It's like conditional forgiveness or something like that. What right does he have to do that? I mean, how is that any example to us? And how can this deception be justified? Because surely Joseph is no better than Jacob, his father, if who you remember a few chapters back deceived his own brother and stole his birthright. So... Isn't history just repeating himself? Why is this a good example for us? And I must admit to not liking this Joseph very much. This Joseph that we see this week with all of his mind games. So there's nothing more that I want to say about it really. No, that's just a joke. And that is genuinely how I found myself looking at this passage just quite confused. Until that is, I stood back a bit from the narrative and all the parts of the story that we all know so well, and tried instead to put myself into Joseph's shoes. Because I think to understand Joseph in this part of the story, you have to see him as a human being against the backdrop of the pain that he was undoubtedly feeling towards these men. And to see what is actually a very human problem that Joseph is dealing with here. And that's Joseph's battle with forgiveness. I mean, just think about it. These men had hated him as a child and wanted to kill him. Now, that's not great for your brothers, is it? They didn't do it, but they abused him. They threw him into a pit. They'd sold him into slavery. I mean, Joseph had been people trafficked. He'd been labelled a slave. He'd been falsely accused and imprisoned, leading to years of fear and uncertainty. I mean, these guys had really hurt him, and now they were in his power again. Do you see? And you know, I think I understand something of the craziness and indecision that he felt in these moments as they were standing there right before him. And it's like Joseph was weighing up The cost, counting up the great cost of letting these men off in exercising forgiveness. How many have had to do that? How many can identify with that? You see, Joseph, I'm sure, was very genuine when he named his sons, as John showed us last week. Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget all my trouble. And his second son, Ephraim, meaning God has made me fruitful in my land of suffering. I'm sure he was really genuine when he did that. But how many of you know that it's one thing to forget and quite another to forgive? And it's one thing to be fruitful now. Everything's great now, but quite another to be healed from the loss that you suffered then. Because as anyone who's been deeply hurt or abused will tell you to be confronted with your abuser involves a whole other level of decision-making about the question of forgiveness. And sometimes you will only know this, you will only feel this when you encounter that person again. Or somebody who's like them or reminds you of them. And then you're shocked by your reaction. I thought this was all dealt with. I thought I'd forgiven. I thought I'd moved on. And then you find that the pain is still there and the realization that healing is still needed, but at an even deeper level. And I think that this is sometimes because in church we, we can deal with issues of forgiveness a bit too quickly. And in our desire to do the right thing, we often ignore the need to do it in the right way. Because to forgive and not forget is actually very powerful. To forgive and not forget is very powerful. It means allowing yourself to fully acknowledge the loss and the pain and then decide to live with it anyway. That's full forgiveness. But it's costly. And it can't be done lightly or just because you've rightly spoken words of forgiveness in obedience and faith. That's not enough. That's just the start. That's the doorway to forgiveness. So let me say this, that if you've never had to count the real cost to forgiveness and felt the burden of the debt that that involves, it's either because you've never really been hurt or sinned against, Or more likely, that you've never really forgiven someone from the heart. You've done it legally, you've done it mentally, but you haven't done it from the heart. And this is what I see in Joseph here today. I see that he's wrestling. He's wrestling with a decision. He's adding up all the pains and deciding whether once again he can choose to forgive. But he's not the only one. In this fractured and dysfunctional family, there are three parties entering the battlefield of forgiveness. Joseph, sorry, Jacob, who needs to forgive God. The brothers who need to forgive themselves. And Joseph who needs to forgive everyone at a deeper level. This whole family has been affected by this mess. And if you think that sin happens in isolation, if you think that pain happens in isolation, then you don't understand the full impact and the need for forgiveness. So let's just look at Jacob first of all. Jacob, he needs to forgive God. He's disillusioned. He feels let down by God. He's heartbroken because of the loss of his favorite son, Joseph, who still at this point thinks he's dead. God has failed him and his family. And he's dealing with questions like, why couldn't God have stopped this? I mean, he's meant to know everything. Why couldn't he have stopped it? Why did it happen? God's powerful. Couldn't he have just stopped this from happening in the first place? And what about the dreams that he'd had? What about those dreams then, all those years ago, and now he's dead? What about the promises? What about the prophecies over his life and over mine? What about those? Can God be trusted anymore, if he even exists? Anybody? Has anybody been through those kinds of questions? Disappointed, disillusioned, does God even exist anymore? I have. And his whole tone, <laughs> Jacob, is just one of fatalism. I mean, if he had a voice and it was a cartoon and he needed to find a voice, it would be Eeyore. I mean, he just sounds like Eeyore to me. Uh, self-pitying and, and saying to Judah uh, about these circumstances in, in Genesis 43.6, Why did you bring this trouble on me? By telling the man you had another brother. Why did you bring... I'm the victim, you know. I'm the victim in the situation. He's powerless. He's powerless in the circumstances. He's certainly not full of faith at this point. And even in verse 11, when he finally tells Judah in resignation to go and get the food anyway because they're going to starve, which is some incentive, it's, not, it's a completely clear where his trust in the situation really lies. In verse 11, their father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Whatever will be, will be. Put some of the best products in the land, of the land, in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spices, and myrrh, some pistachio nuts, and almonds. That's what he was trusting in. That's what he was trusting in. I'm going to smooth the way with my produce. And you know, when we feel God lets us down, that's what happens. We begin, instead of relying on God, we begin to look to our own resources and strength. Because it helps us to avoid the problem of the trust that is broken down between us. If if we can just provide for our own needs, if we can find comfort in things around us, we don't need him anymore. We don't have to face the issue of the gulf that's opened up between us because we're mad at him. If we can just provide for our own needs, we don't need to look to God. But then, it's like Joseph catches himself, and, and it's all, it almost seems to me, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seems like he, he almost inadvertently prays. And he speaks again to Joseph, Judah, sorry, and he says in verse 14, And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. So that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back to you. A little glimmer of hope, a little glimmer of faith, but then he reverts to form. As for me, if I'm bereaved, I am bereaved. Did you see that? That was good, wasn't it? A bit of acting there. Yeah. I- And, you know, this is an interesting prayer. And as I was reading this passage, I thought, oh, I'd just like to preach on this prayer because it's easier to deal with than all the other stuff of disillusionment. It's an interesting prayer, especially as it's probably inadvertent. But it's like hope tries to break through. He, he uses God's name, Almighty God. It passes his lips. Finally, he prays. He says the name, the first recorded use of God's name on Jacob's lips since the Joseph incident. Almighty God. And his prayer contains, for the first time in the Bible, which is why I think it's very significant, the word mercy. Almighty God, God of mercy. <laughs> The first time he mentions God's name, the first time the word mercy appears in the Bible, which then, I think, becomes the big theme of all these puzzling interactions between Joseph, who also is powerful in the situation. He is almighty governor of Egypt. He is powerful in the situation. His brothers and ultimately the whole family need his mercy to live. And the question that's not voiced but is there is, will he be merciful? Will he be merciful to this family? And is God merciful is the question that underlines it all. And you know, mercy can only truly be exercised by one who is so much more powerful than the other. Mercy can't be offered to someone who doesn't owe anything. If there is no debt, then there needs to be no mercy. But this is the question that lies behind all forgiveness. The debt that we owe to God. Will God be merciful in answer to Jacob's prayer? Will Joseph be merciful with his brothers? Will the brothers find mercy who owe so much? And will forgiveness flow and healing come to this fractured and dysfunctional family. That's what this section is about. Now let's look at the brothers. The brothers are the second party in this battle for forgiveness. The brothers need to forgive themselves. Uh, And it's just evident as you read through the story that the pain of what they did to Joseph and the guilt is very close to the surface. I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like, what it would be like to live with murder on my conscience. Because that's what they're doing. That's what it says in chapter 42, 22. I mean, how? I mean, I've, I've got stuff that I've had to battle with in my conscience, but imagine murder. Imagine you have murdered somebody. What would that be like? How it must eat at you, how, how it must play over and over again in the mind, and the, the what ifs and the if onlys must almost drive you out of your mind. And it must be on a whole other scale to any of our experience. And how it must relate to every circumstance you find yourself in. Oh, it must be because I did that. So in chapter 42, when things start to go wrong with Joseph the first time, that's what they say. Surely we're being punished because of our brother. That's what it is. Remember, they said... How, how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. They torment themselves. That's why this distress has come on us. Interestingly, the, they use the passive voice. We are being punished. By who? Who are you being punished by? By God? Or are they tormenting themselves? In the circumstances. And then it goes on in verse 22. Reuben replied. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. Not realizing that Joseph could understand everything that they were saying. You know when you are. In that position where you are desperately looking for mercy. When forgiveness has eluded you for years. It's very hard to find peace again. How many times they must have discussed it and agonized over it, especially when they see how their actions affected their father. He wanted to die. He didn't want to live anymore. And it was their fault. Their decision, and now they are brought before Joseph again around the issue of the stolen silver cup. They prostrate themselves before him, and as broken men, men they cry out with words that say more than they know. In chapter 44, verse 6 says, What can we say, my Lord? Judah replied, What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord's slaves, we ourselves, and the one who was found to have the cup. Crying out in desperation because of the burden that they are living with, the guilt, the torment, and the deception, their cry for mercy. They can't forgive themselves for what they've done. And it's like they too have lived in a prison all their lives. Never mind Joseph, they've been in prison too. Is that what it's like for you? Needing mercy. Needing forgiveness. They've not forgiven themselves. But there is evidence of sorrow and repentance in their actions. Through Judah, the boys express a very different attitude towards their father and their younger brother Benjamin in chapter 44. Verse 30 says... So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he's going to die. Your servants will bring the grey head, taking responsibility, your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father, he said, And if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear responsibility and blame uh, to my father all my life. Now, rather than throwing their younger brother in the pit this time and stuffing their father, who cares about him? They take responsibility. Now then, verse 33, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return With his brothers. How can I go back to my father. If the boy is not with me. No. Do not let me see the misery. That would come on my father. And here, if we had time, we could unpack this. It's a really, good, a really good explanation and a picture of what is crucial for gaining mercy. But just let me draw it to your attention that there's three things that are required to gain mercy from God that are illustrated here. One is a change of thinking towards your sin. That's called Repentance. Second, it's the need to take responsibility for what you've done. Stop blaming other people. Take responsibility for yourself. And then there is the need to ask for mercy. Which then leads us to Joseph. Joseph needs to forgive everyone. And he, as I've already pointed out, is really counting the cost of forgiveness here. And over these chapters, I've said that i recognise some of Joseph's strange behavior is because he's wrestling with this. He's, he's counting the true cost of showing mercy. Because, you know, forgiveness literally means to let someone off. I'm going to let them off. I'm going to let them go free. I'm going to let them off. Wow. Let them off for what you did to me. Not going to hold it against him anymore. And I think he was weighing that up. Am I going to let them off? Am I really going to do this? Balancing perhaps the delicious possibility of revenge. Oh, wouldn't it be great to get some revenge? Their lives were literally in his hands, and he was balancing it against the price he would have to pay to grant forgiveness, possibly leading to reconciliation. I mean, would you want these guys back in your life? He started outright, the warm welcome he gives his brothers when they arrive, the food, the drink, stay in the palace, honored guests, all that seems to show that he's ready to forgive until, until the moment he sets his eyes on Benjamin. Something happens when he sees Benjamin. In chapter 43, verse 29, he looked about and he saw his brother Benjamin, his, brother, his mother's own son, and he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. And deeply he was moved at the sight of his brother, and Joseph had to hurry out of the room and look for somewhere to break his heart in weeping. And he went to his private room and he broke his heart in weeping. Something happened when he laid his eyes on Benjamin. The brother that he shared both mother and father with. The other brothers were half-brothers of his. Children of his father. And I'm going to call this the Benjamin factor. He encountered the Benjamin factor. Something caught in his eye. In his eyes. He, he hadn't seen him for 20 years or more. And the sight of Benjamin. That moment unlocked a powerful and strong emotion. It was the realisation perhaps of all those years. And the loss that he'd sustained, the relationship, and what could have been. It could have been, you know, the family things I missed out on, the Christmas times, the presents, all that kind of thing, the birthdays, the celebrations, the memories that I don't have because I was shut out of them. He was suffering a loss that no money, no fame and position that he had now could ever fully compensate. You can have all the money in your world, but if you don't have relationship, if you don't have depth of love and friendship, what's it worth? The Benjamin factor. And when we are confronted with the cost of true forgiveness, we all have to deal with the Benjamin factor. We will have to deal with the deep emotion and pain that erupts in these moments like a boil that has been lanced. And it spills out so that the infection of unforgiveness that leads to bitterness is displaced from our hearts. That's what was happening. You just couldn't hold it in anymore. And I want to just say to you that when you are dealing with the Benjamin factor, don't be afraid of strong emotions. Don't be afraid that you have to deal with forgiveness from the heart. But Joseph wasn't quite done. His emotions drove him from the room. In that moment, he could have decided to reveal himself. And in that moment, he could have said, guys, but I forgive you. But he couldn't do it. It drove him from the room. He had to hide himself from them to get self-control again. He was still weighing it up. He needed more time. And that's what the silver cup was all about. Joseph needed more time, and he needed them to come back to him. He needed to keep them a little longer. Still weighing it up, he needed to see them again, especially Benjamin. Could this be it? Could this mean that they all get back together? Could now reconciliation be possible, or at least begun? And that's the cliffhanger that these two chapters leave us on. And we'll find out the answer to that question next week. (laughs) And so we see that the story shows us where the battle lines of mercy and forgiveness generally lie. We struggle to forgive God, leading to disappointment or disillusionment and distance from him. We struggle to forgive others because the cost is too much and the pain is too raw. We struggle to forgive ourselves which in my experience is one of the most common battles that Christians face. And most of us are pretty good at forgiving others, actually. Even the knowledge of the fact that I need to do it isn't much debated by many Christians. Even seeing perhaps the nonsense of holding things against God, who's perfect and never makes a mistake, awkward. But we do have a tendency to be very hard on ourselves, don't we? So what about you? Are there any areas of forgiveness for which the battle lines are currently drawn? Who are you holding out on? Is it God? Someone else or yourself? I'm just going to pray and then i to take you through a few more things and then bring things to a landing. I just want to pray because I want to ask the Holy Spirit to help you because I'm not about condemnation here, I'm about revelation. I want God to show you what he wants to do for you today. Okay, so just, let's just pray for a moment. Holy Spirit, we just invite you. Will you just come and bring revelation? Will you just come and show us now how to walk free from anything that we're carrying, from anything that we're burdened by, so that forgiveness can flow and healing can come to us. In Jesus' name. So while you're thinking about that, let me make some final statements about forgiveness. Uh, I think there are five. I'm just going to go through them fairly quickly. Because when you're counting the cost of forgiveness, you really need to understand what you're doing. Number one, forgiveness is not about forgetting. As I've already said, forgiveness and forgetting are two very different things. You'll not necessarily forget what has been done to you because you've forgiven. But forgiveness means that you'll no longer use the sin against that person. You won't bring it up and you won't talk about it again, even if it's your husband or wife. You're not allowed to mention it again once you've forgiven just thought I'd say that. It may mean that your relationship doesn't continue in the same way or even that the relationship can't continue. Uh, There is this fallacy that somehow forgiveness means that you should be able to be best friends even though some awful sin or crime has been committed against you. The Bible doesn't say that. Sometimes reconciliation isn't possible. Secondly, forgiveness is a choice. You have to choose to forgive. Don't wait for the feelings to come before you forgive. Oh, yeah, I think I'll forgive. there. No. just don't wait. It won't happen. <laughs> I've tried that one. You know, you have to forgive in face and then the feelings may come. But make sure you deal with the feelings, too. So say it in faith, do it and mean it from the heart, but then be open to God because that's the doorway that can then lead you to a deeper internal work of forgiveness and healing. The disciples came to Jesus one day and they said, how many times do I need to forgive my brother when he sins against me? 70 times 7, which literally means every time you think about that person, every time you think about that situation, every time you face that circumstance again, every remembrance of it, choose to forgive again. Choose to forgive them again, again, do it again, and it goes deeper. It's onion rings. (laughs) You do it deeper, you do it deeper, until finally it seems like it doesn't matter anymore, and you walk free. Forgiveness is the choice. Forgive so that you can be free. You know, we think we're so great holding on to something against somebody, I'm going to get revenge or whatever, I'm holding this against you, and you kind of look across the room, they have no idea, and just smile at you, you know. They don't even know that you've got something against them, but you feel powerful and good. But forgiveness is so that you can be free. It's, not, it's nothing to do with them. It's between you and God. It's a matter of obedience to God, and God wants you to be free, and there's no other way of being free in that moment. Holding on to forgiveness, holding back on forgiveness, hurts you more than them. It tears at you. It destroys your heart and it leads to calluses and problems with relationships with other people. And then forgiveness is agreeing to live with the consequences of another person's sin. I personally found that a very powerful thought. That's what forgiveness is. It's agreeing to live with the consequences of another person's sin. sin. Because forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that your circumstances will change which is vexing, vexing, vexing. You have to live with those circumstances still. It's not going to change. You're not going to see something come out and judgment come down and deal with them there and then. It's just not going to happen. Really, I've prayed for it. It doesn't happen. No, forgiveness is deciding to live with the consequences and the circumstances that are not going to change necessarily. And if they do change, you're not going to go, ha ha, I told you so. You can't do that either, because otherwise you've not forgiven them. So just because you've forgiven your abuser doesn't mean that you will not have to live with the scars, but you will be free and legally and morally right before God. Next, forgive from the heart. This means that our emotions must be connected to our forgiveness. You've felt pain Through that event, you even suffered torment. And forgiveness means releasing the other person, not just for the act committed against you, but for the way that it made you feel. And this is often overlooked in forgiveness and involves the processing of disappointment and pain to get healing. That takes time. That takes time. It takes journeying with God to do that. The Forgiveness, I'm going to say it again, when you forgive in obedience and faith, that's just the doorway into a complete realm of forgiveness with God. And finally, forgive God and yourself too. So often we focus on the person that's hurt us, not the blame that we may have attached to God. So God, why didn't you stop that? Why didn't you protect me or, or do something? You know, you, you're God. You could, have, you could have done something. What were you sitting there for? Read the Psalms. There are a lot about that. And we blame ourselves. Why was I so stupid to get into this mess? Why did I trust that person? If only I hadn't trusted them, this would never have happened. Oh, silly me, I'll never trust anybody again. And in my experience, many people have failed to find freedom in forgiveness because they've neglected these two things. They might have even worked through some of the other stuff, but they haven't dealt with their need to forgive God. And they certainly haven't dealt with the need to forgive themselves.